And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. To understand the meaning of uh, today's gospel, we first have to clear aside one um, mistake that one could easily make about this gospel. In fact, one I realized only this week that I've made my entire life. (coughs) Sorry, a little tickle in my throat. Um, And I think it's because, I'm sure we all have different arenas like this, but because it sort of mapped onto my experience that when I would go back to Wisconsin and be among the people who knew me in high school, when I was a a total goofball (laughs) and loud, and sometimes quite obnoxious. Uh, and then I would tell them that now I'm a priest, and they'd be like, what? <laughs> and, I'd be like, and I would think to myself, a prophet has an honor in his hometown. <laughs> um, what I realized with the mistaken application is that Jesus had nothing shameful or embarrassing or disqualifying in his past, right? Whereas all ministers of the gospel today minister in the spirit of St. Paul, right? We are not the Christ. I am weak. He is strong. Right? Every priest, every minister, every Christian has something where oh, when someone knows about that, it's like, man, you're a Christian? And it's like, I know. <laughs> right? Like, my message is not that I am good. It's that I found the one who is good, and he has forgiven me. Right? So with, because this is such a universal experience, um, I think I've always misheard what Jesus is saying here. That He's not saying, oh, because these guys know me, they won't pay me honor. Right? Jesus was a perfect man. He was a perfect child. He, he never sinned. He never broke a single one of God's commandments. And, and not only did he not break the Old Testament commandments, he never, ever, ever failed to fulfill the commandment of love. Right? He's the only perfect man. So that was true for his entire life, which means he would have been a great neighbor. Right? Before his public ministry, imagine if you lived, somebody lived next door to Jesus. Right? before he was known famously as the Messiah and revealed himself to be through epiphany after epiphany, the son of God, he would have been a great neighbor. He would have been a great friend, right? He would have been that friend that when you lend the lawnmower, they bring it back all like cleaned and refilled and all of like, because he was loved his neighbor. Everything Jesus commands us to do, he commands because he himself did that, right? He was perfect. He was perfectly loving. He would have been a great to do business with. He would have uh, apprenticed in his father's, his earthly foster father's trade Right, carpentry, um, he would have been a pleasure to do business with. People would have liked him. It's why he would get invited to a wedding, right, before his, his public ministry had even begun. Right? You invite the people that you like, usually, to a wedding. So um, Jesus is not commenting on sort of, oh, because they know me, they don't honor me. Right? What he's actually commenting on is the reception he's receiving among his own people, by which he means the Jewish people. So he refers in the sequence, right, to his hometown of Nazareth, and then to his relatives who would have lived in the wider area, you know, they didn't have quite the same breakdown, but you could call the county of Galilee, right? Nazareth is in the county of Galilee, that region of the Sea of Galilee, where his relatives, which is the expansive term for uncles, cousins, second cousins, right, they would have been scattered around a handful of towns. So he says in his hometown um, and among his relatives and then in his own household, right, which seemed, would seem to be a smaller word and you would usually, usually might mean um, wife and kids of which Jesus had none. But in the prophetic sense, as we just heard in Ezekiel, it's the same word in Greek, 
the Jewish people are referred to as the household of God, the house of God. So when Jesus is saying, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his household, he doesn't mean just those living under his roof. It's a prophetic way of referring to all of the Jewish people. Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and he came to bring the gospel, as he says. And it's, he says it in his own ministry um, to the Canaanite woman, and it's stated again in the epistles, that the gospel came first for the Jews. They were the ones who had been holding on to these promises of the Messiah, and they were the ones who got to be the first to open the present on Christmas Day. And yet, most of the Jews in Jesus' day rejected him just as they had formerly rejected the prophets that God had sent them. Think about Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos, right? These prophets, they get sent. Um, I, w- I think this was one of the other things they think, you know, prophet has honor except in his hometown. Did Jeremiah and Ezekiel ever get honored? No, the opposite, right? Jeremiah is thrown in jail. Ezekiel is just summarily dismissed and ignored. They preached the prophetic word and they were rejected. And what's surprising is sometimes, although the very people who were meant to receive the message didn't receive it, we even get these glimpses in the Old Testament, and I think this is what Jesus is referring to, of Jewish prophets getting honored by foreigners. Right? Think about Joseph. His brothers reject him when he gets a prophetic dream. But who honors him? Pharaoh of Egypt. Right? Pharaoh of Egypt knows here's a guy who's really wise and could do great things. So the prophet was honored by foreigners, not in the household of God. So knowing what we know about Old Testament history, right? when you read, it's like God sends them a prophet, trying to call them back to God, and they reject the prophet, and they reject the prophet, and they reject the prophet. It's at once surprising, but also not surprising, when one greater than Jeremiah or Ezekiel is here, and he's rejected. Um, It's always a little funny calling Jesus a prophet, right? It's almost like if you described your spouse to someone as your friend, you're like, well, they are your friend, but there's so much more than that, right? Jesus is the one who sent the prophets. When it says in the prophets, the word of God, which we know from the Gospel of John is Jesus, right? The word of God came to Zechariah and said, son of man, say da-da-da-da-da, right? Jesus is not just a prophet like them. He's the sender of the prophets. And he is that because as God, he sees the end of time from the beginning. Right? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He stands at both ends of the timeline. Um, we just started watching that Loki series, and so I can't think of timeline without saying that. Um, but he stands at either end of the timeline. So when he speaks the word to the prophet to say, it's because he sees the end, and he's revealing the end in a glimpse to God's people. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the wellspring of prophecy. And so in his own ministry, when he's going about Judea, telling God's people what they need and how to get it, right? The kingdom of God is here. And he demonstrates the um, authority of his message with signs of power, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. They actually get what he's saying. That's to me, I realize that the sharp edge of the knife in this passage, in verse 2 it says, the very acknowledgement of the people in Nazareth they acknowledge what Jesus is doing, that he has great wisdom. Right? They're not saying you're not wise. They're saying you are wise, and where did you get that? <clears throat> he does mighty works. And so seeing it, they then ask, what they're saying is they don't want it. They don't want the life he's offering. He's offering a, 
a new life, a deeper life in God than was available under the keeping of the law. And they hardened their hearts against him. And so it's from a hard heart that they produce these very flimsy sort of skeptical questions, right? Where did this guy get this learning? How? How? What's the mechanism by which he is doing these things? We know this guy. He's just a regular guy. He's one of us. He's a townie. I'm friends with his brother. Right? This list of the brothers and sisters. Like, we know that guy's brother. They're pitiful dodges. They were fabricating reasons to justify themselves in rejecting Jesus' call to enter the kingdom of God. And so, you know, it's sort of this instinct in human nature, right? That tale of Aesop's, uh, of, with the fox who can't reach the grapes, who says, well, I'm sure they're sour anyways, right? The very thing we, re we reject or can't lay hold of, we then, we call it bad. So Jesus is rejected. Even though he had never done harm to anybody, especially his, town, his fellow townspeople, Nazareth. He had brought life and truth wherever he went, and especially now in his public ministry. Of all people that should have known him, it should have been his, his fellow Nazarenes. I, I don't know if you call them Nazarenes, Nazarites. Nazarenes. <clears throat> of all people that should have known him, it should have been his fellow Nazarenes. But they are the very ones who reject him almost first. It's the fruit of their unbelief. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus, so Jesus gave them what they wanted, which is nothing, right? It says he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. They said they didn't want him, and he says, okay, then you won't have it. Two things should be noted about this, um, the end of this passage in the Gospel. It says he could do no mighty work there. <clears throat> and the rejection by the Nazarenes. The first, and this is very mysterious, is that Jesus' rejection by the Jewish people is what opened the door for the mission to the Gentiles. Do any of you have Jewish blood that you know of in your, like in your veins? Like, is your mother Jewish? Okay, I didn't think so, but just in case. That means you're all Gentiles. So in a mysterious way, and the Holy Spirit speaks to St. Paul to kind of open up this mystery to us in Romans 11, 11. He says, through the trespass of Israel, right, the Jewish people rejecting Jesus, it says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So in this mysterious way, the mission extended to us because of this rejection by the Jewish people. And this is so interesting. So I, I had to look up the statistic. There were between two and four million Jews on the earth in Jesus' day. Some of them, a remnant, as Paul describes them, recognized Jesus as their Messiah and and lived into the fulfillment of the covenant they'd been waiting for, right? So all of the apostles were Jews. Many of the early church were Jews. But the larger portion of the Jewish people of Jesus' day rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But by the rejection of a, a larger portion of that, say, two million, now there's over two billion, two thousand billion <clears throat> Gentile Christians on the planet. So it's this it's, it's very strange economy that there's all these things. And remember, this is Jesus' teaching. He wasn't honored. He's not without honor, except in his hometown. The Jewish people had rejected him. But now Christ has been honored among thousands of millions of Gentiles in a very strange fulfillment of this saying. So the first is that sort of mysterious historical um, Connection. The second thing, um, and this is what we should do anytime we see someone with a hard heart 
in the Old Testament or the New Testament is see a warning for ourselves. Right? Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, remember how they grumbled in the wilderness? Don't be like that. And it's the same thing here. God would warn us, don't be like the Nazarenes. Right? Don't be like those unbelieving neighbors of Jesus. And so one of the ways we could sort of now know um, to avoid falling into that pit is if um, sort of flimsy, skeptical questions come to mind. The question's not the thing. Jesus could have answered the how. He could have said, oh, I mean, to use later theological language, because my full humanity is hypostatically united to my full divinity and so the full power of God is manifest here. You know, like there is an answer to the how. I mean, as much as that's an answer. Um, but the question wasn't the thing. It was the heart that was the problem. <clears throat> so when you find a, a sort of skeptical question, I think it's a good ch indicator to check in with one's own heart, right? Like, oh, Lord, am I, have I, am I hardening my heart against you? He's kind of, and it's not that the Lord is afraid of questioning, although not, we're not allowed to bring our questions to him. It's the quality of the question, right? It's all the difference in the world between, Lord, how does this work? Or how does this work, right? And that seems to be the tone that the, the Nazarenes were speaking in. How is it possible? What's the source of this? Especially when Jesus is offering you something, because he was offering the Nazarene something, whether it's um, forgiveness for a particular sin that's hung up in your conscience, right? whether it's a promise that he's made that you're not sure if you can trust or not, that he, for instance, in Romans 8, um, will work all things together for the good of those who love him, whether it's provision for a practical need or grace for help. We're not to be like the Nazarene and say, well, how could you do that, God? but just to receive it with faith. Trusting that he is true, <clears throat> even if the how is opaque. So, you know, how will he raise us all from the dead? How is it that when he comes back, every human being is gonna see him at the same time? How is it that we eat his resurrected body through simple bread and wine? How is the wrong response? Thank you is the right response, right? Wow, thank you. <laughs> Thank you that we have hope of life beyond the grave. Thank you for spiritually sustaining us in a sacrament that you gave us. I think, lastly, um, there's the danger of the long and faithful Christian life is um, not, be, not for any fault of God's, but only because of our own flesh, a sort of too casual familiarity with the truths of God and who he is in our midst. Just like the Nazarenes were like, don't we know his brothers and sisters? Right? There's a way in which you could sort of skeptically look at the church, like, don't we know his brothers and sisters? Aren't we just this kind of ragtag band? Well, yes, we are just this ragtag band. But it doesn't dis disqualify or speak against the power of our, to use biblical language, elder brother, right? By adoption, we've been adopted. He's the son and we've been adopted as sons and daughters. Familiarity with the humanness of the church, or the humanity of Christ, shouldn't lead us to, to contempt. There's always more to be known and learned about Jesus. And if we start closing our minds and thinking, oh, well, this is just a religious custom, or this is just a thing, and we, and we sort of restrict in our faith the idea that the truth that Jesus is alive and actually is more than we could ever comprehend and has more life to give us than we could ever receive, we will actually miss out. And that's where we end up in this gospel. Those who didn't have faith in Jesus miss out on experiencing him. He could do no mighty work there. 
And I think just, you know, trace that onto the heart. He, he could do no mighty work here if we persist in unbelief, right? It's not, and I love that the gospel says, hey, now he did do a few healings, but just a few. <laughs> it's like, oh, just a few healings, you know, no big deal. So it's not that the Lord can't do any work, thanks be to God. He actually is always sort of leaping beyond, the, you know, just inside the edge of our faith, beyond the edge of our faith. But he could do no mighty work there as long as we persist in unbelief. So um, let us honor him with the honor that he's due, right? A prophet is not, is not without honor, except in his hometown. What little honor that is that we have to offer. And we do that by simply saying, Yes, Christ will proclaim again in our liturgy, the spirit of Christ through these prayers, these words, these promises he's given us in scripture presented in our prayer book. You are forgiven for your sins. The answer isn't, well, how? It's thank you. Yes, and thank you to his great and boundless offer of mercy. Amen.